Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you have kids in the SEEDS program and it's been a while since you thank the teachers who work with your kids, could I just encourage you as you're picking your kids up today to say a really big thank you? I think that's the hardest ministry in this church. It should say something that I, I would prefer to do public speaking than do SEEDS ministry. It is a hard thing, but it is one of the most important things that we do at our church. This morning, I'm not going to preach a message. Is it just me, or is there a lot of echo? Is it okay okay for you guys? I feel like I'm speaking from the bottom of a swimming pool up here. Um, Just sounds different. Uh, I'm not going to give a Mother's Day message, but this message might be relevant to your relationship with your mom. If it is, that would be great if it sparks something in you. I do want to say, once again, with everyone else, happy Mother's Day. Moms, you need to know that uh, even though you don't always feel appreciated, and you go through a lot, I'm I'm convinced that um, most people, until they've had a really hard time with kids of their own, will never fully understand what their moms have done for them. But even if the kids or the people around you can't affirm you, God sees you. And he is really affirming how worthy, how important it is, what you do as a mother. If your mom is still with you and she's accessible, do your best to go see her or at least give her a call today. If you're having a difficult relationship with your mom, maybe in faith step out today and maybe this could be the first day of one small step towards reconciliation and peacemaking between you and your mom. This morning, I want to give a message entitled, But God. One of the exercises that I've done from time to time in mentoring situations is I have the mentee fill out something we call a life map. And I don't know if you've ever done something similar to this exercise, maybe by a different name, But in a life map exercise, you take a a chart and you plot all the significant high points and low points in your life story. The things that made you celebrate and cheer and the stuff that just brought you really low. And as you plot those things out, you just kind of draw a line between them. And at the end, it really ends up, for most people that I've met, I have yet to meet anyone whose plot is basically up and to the right the whole way through. It looks more like the stock market in a volatile economy. I mean, it's just all over the place. And this morning, I want to look at at the life of a man named Joseph in the Old Testament, whose life, just like all of ours, was a life of tons of ups and downs. His story is recorded in Genesis 37 to 50. That's 13 chapters. I'm not going to read that whole passage for obvious reasons. But I want to plot out Joseph's life story a little bit in a life map for you. And with each one of these pieces in his story, I picture in in my voice each time I go through this, people cheering, yay, or people saying, oh. Joseph is born into a wealthy family. Most people will be like, yeah, that's a high point. But he's born last of 11 boys. They're all ahead of him. To get everything good. But Joseph is his father's favorite. 
but his brothers hate him for it. And they violently sell him into slavery behind their father's back. But Joseph performs so well in the house of his new master that he's put in charge of the whole house. But then his master's wife falsely accuses him of assault and he's put in prison. But then he does so well in the prison, the jailer puts him in charge of the whole show. But then this royal cupbearer, a fellow inmate, Joseph shows him a kindness, and when the guy gets out of prison, he totally forgets the kindness that Joseph showed. But then Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret, but Joseph successfully interprets the dream, and he's put in second in command over the whole country. But then a famine hits the entire region in which Joseph lives, and people are starving to death all around him. But Joseph, having interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, wisely stores up plenty of food for everyone in Egypt and enough to feed the people in the surrounding lands. But in Israel, Joseph's own family of origin, his father and his brothers and all of their kin, are starving to death. Seeking food, they come to Egypt and they are reunited with Joseph and he's able to provide the food that saves their lives. Then soon after the reunion, Jacob's father, who he longed to see all his life, passes away of old age. That's just one story of one man in the Bible. But I would be very surprised if your life map looks too different from that. My life map has a lot of ups, but it does have a lot of downs too. And typically... We think of the high points as triumphs, and we think of the low points as tragedies, and they are. At a surface level, the good stuff that happens makes us cheer, and the bad stuff that happens breaks us. But it's sometimes out of the lowest points in our lives that God produces the most beautiful, powerful work in our lives. I know no one wants to believe that, And it's not a guaranteed promise. Please don't receive this as some inviolable law of the universe that every time you have a low point, God will pick it up and turn it into an awesome thing. That doesn't always happen. I don't think anyone can speak for God and make that claim. But I know this, because God exists, the natural course of things doesn't always unfold. The natural course of things in this broken world is that low points stay low and they they shatter us, they break us. But because God exists, we have seen time and time again in Scripture, in history, even in our own lives, that out of the lowest points in our lives, some of the most beautiful things emerge. Joseph's own life had been marked by lots of ups and downs, but one of the threads that ran commonly through his whole story was the loss of his family and the longing he had to be reunited with the people he belonged to. He'd made a pretty amazing life in a land he didn't choose, But nobody wants to be a displaced, orphaned slave. Even if you become successful and wealthy, you're not in the place where you belong. And Joseph had always been well-loved by his father. And he kept thinking all his life what his father must be thinking. Where is my beloved youngest son? How did he just disappear like that? He's finally reunited with his father, probably the highest point in his life followed immediately by the lowest point, 
as his father's taken away from him. We pick up the story there. And in Genesis 50, verse 15, it reads like this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? Joseph's brothers had really good reason to be worried. They had pretty much stabbed him in the back. They had betrayed him in the worst possible way. And now they were in front of him, and he was the second most powerful man in their whole world. I want you to pause and think about that situation. The person you betrayed most horribly when he was a helpless kid is now the second most powerful person on the earth, and you are at his mercy. And they suspected, what if he's been withholding his revenge just out of respect for our father, but now that our father's gone, he's got free reign, he can do anything he wants to us. And they probably wondered that because they were vengeful, spiteful people. And they probably imagined if we were in his shoes, this is exactly what we'd be thinking about doing right now. I know that when I watch a movie, even though I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to be a person of grace, when someone does something awful to another person, I'm like on the edge of my seat waiting for the vengeance moment. Oh, get that justice, man. Show them what's what. People shouldn't get away with that. And we should like justice, but revenge and justice are not always the same. And everyone in the natural world is expecting this story to go the road of vengeance. That's where it should go, logically. Having all this fear, they don't even approach Joseph directly. They first start by sending him a note, maybe a message verbally through a messenger. But they send word to Joseph saying, I love this, they don't even appeal for themselves. They, they leverage their father. Your father left these instructions before he died. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Man, that's like the most manipulative, leveraged apology I've ever read. That would not fly today, would it? And when the message came to him, Joseph wept. Now, since we know the rest of the story, we have an idea why Joseph wept. But at this point, no one knows why he's crying. Maybe he's crying out of joy that his moment of revenge has finally come. I cannot believe I get to finally kill these guys. So they send a message pleading for his forgiveness. And then, when they sense that he hasn't put out an execution order, they approach him themselves And it says his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. And they said, we are your slaves. Ironically, this is the exact fulfillment of the dream that had gotten them so mad in the first place. Joseph had had a dream that all his, his, his older brothers and his parents were bowing down in front of him. And they're like, say what? And they were so offended that they betrayed him and sent his life off into a path of terrible suffering and chaos. And yet now, voluntarily, they themselves were fulfilling that very dream. This is the moment every revenge fantasy builds towards. 
The ones who betrayed you are groveling at your feet, and you hold all the power. Anyone who has ever written or read a story knows how this one's supposed to finish. If it were your story, and you were in Joseph's shoes, honestly, think about it. What would you do? I know the good Christians among us just automatically say, oh, I, I just forgive them. I've been a pastor a long time, sat in a lot of rooms, listening to people struggle through unforgiveness. I'm not so sure we Christians do a great job of letting people off the hook. I know I don't. And in the natural course of this world, this moment should end in violent vindication for a young man who was wronged by people who should have been taking care of him. In this moment, the story of Joseph's life and all those people who had affected him are at a turning point. They can go one way or they can go another. And where that, that journey goes from there is going to define the rest of their lives. These are pivotal moments, decisions that shape everything that follows. And I believe that in this situation through Joseph's life, we see two ways that God so often redeems the lowest points in our lives. And the first way he so often beautifully redeems the worst moments in our lives is through forgiveness. I know what I would be writing if I were writing Joseph's story as a novelist. And even if I'd have Joseph forgive them in the end, man, I would make him sweat and earn it. But that's not what Joseph does at all. Look what he does. He says to them, so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This makes no sense to me. We have a picture here of a victim soothing and comforting those who salted him, those who betrayed him. I think that's a very dangerous picture if God is not involved. Because to go from being a victim to being the one who comforts the ones who hurt you, to release them in forgiveness, that is a very dangerous thing unless something profound has happened in you first. To take care of that deep wound which others have created. And to provide something inside that isn't just human, that allows for you to exercise power that is totally unnatural. But in Joseph's case, along the course of his life's journey, through all the ups and downs, he'd come to know this very faithful God. And while the life path that his life was set on is never one he would have chosen, time after time after time, when he hit his low points, God picked it up 
and revealed himself to him. And there was a healing process as out of the ashes of a failed life, a betrayed, victimized life, God starts to do something profound. And so in this moment where vengeance would have been everybody's first instinct, Joseph is able to be the one who comforts his brothers who are rightfully afraid for their lives. I'm glad these men were scared. You shouldn't be allowed to do this kind of thing to people and just make an apology and just walk away. I'm glad that they were genuinely terrified for their lives, and rightfully they should be, because when you treat people this way, there should be a consequence, and there should be justice. That is nothing surprising. That's the natural way of the world, with or without God in the picture. That is how things do work. That is how things should work. But in this moment the story takes a completely unexpected turn because instead of revenge, Joseph shows forgiveness and kindness. <clears throat> when I was younger, I used to read a lot more poetry. Lately, I just I feel too rushed in my spirit to read poetry. But I read a poem this week called Forgiveness by a guy named George Romish. And in this poem... There's a line that really grabs me. It's often uh, attributed to Mark Twain, mistakenly. Mark Twain never said this. But he writes, Forgiveness is the fragrance of the violet, which still clings fast to the heel that crushed it. If you're not a poetry person, let me break it down for you. Some person has just ground their foot over a beautiful violet. But in its death, that violet left a residue of fragrance on that very shoe. That's what forgiveness is. It is always unexpected. It is always undeserved. And it is a gift of pure mercy and grace in which the victim releases both the victimizer and themselves from the ongoing cycle of unforgiveness and pain and anger. You cannot get there apart from God. There's nothing in us human beings that will allow us to get to that place. I cannot get there apart from God. You cannot get there apart from God. You can fake it, but you won't make it. Eventually, that vengeance will come out. But God does an extraordinary thing. Through the power of His forgiveness, He gives us a foreign ability, an unnatural ability to forgive other people. One of the ways you know that the gospel's power has been applied rightly to your own soul is that you are able at, at times, not perfectly, not infallibly, but you are able at times to release others through forgiveness. Colossians 2.13 says, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. What Paul is writing there is that forgiveness is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It is through forgiveness 
that we who are spiritually dead inside because of the bad things we've done, because of the bad things that have been done to us, we were dead inside. We weren't just bad. We weren't just tired. We were dead. Sin kills the human spirit. And what God used to bring us back to life was forgiveness. And used forgiveness given to us and given through us, through this incredible unnatural power, he brings dead things back to life. Forgiveness is resurrection power. But here's the thing we have to remember. Forgiveness is only necessary because something bad has been done by one person to another. We can celebrate the beauty of forgiveness, but never forget that the only reason we're talking about forgiveness at all is because an offense has been committed between two people. An unjustified, in a worldly sense, unforgivable, unwarranted offense has been done from one person to another just out of the wickedness and the darkness in that person's heart. No reason, just because. And because such things happen in this world, forgiveness is a thing. We hate the moments where offense is given. But it is out of those moments that the beauty and the divine power, the resurrection power of forgiveness, actually enters our world. Apart from offenses, this world will never see the power and the beauty of the act of forgiveness. As a matter of fact, Paul reminds us in Romans 5.8, this is in fact the very proof that God loves us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and forgave us. Forgiveness, I found, I'm sure you will agree with me, is probably the hardest thing in this world to practice. We're so afraid that if I forgive, it will justify the other person and they will keep doing what they've been doing. In some cases, that's very true. Sometimes the hardest person in the world to forgive is ourselves. Have you been there? So powerless to change? so gripped by self-loathing, defeat? Why can't I be better than this? Why can't I be different? Why do I do this again and again? I found that forgiveness is one of the hardest things in all of the Christian life to practice. Generosity is hard, but it's a million times easier than forgiveness. I'll give you a million dollars before I forgive you sometimes. How about you? You guys are looking like I'm the only jerk in this room. I'm like, how's that guy preaching to us? <laughs> Any of you guys struggle with forgiveness? Am I alone in here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, brother. Bob Manzano has got my back. Do you struggle with forgiveness? And we struggle because it's undeserved. And it should be unexpected. But it is one of the most powerful things in this whole universe. Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian, once wrote in a book that forgiveness is the fullest form of love. 
You want to say you love someone or that love exists in you. One of the fullest proofs of that love is the ability to forgive. So that's one way that God redeems the lowest moments of our lives is through the beautiful, powerful, unnatural act of forgiveness. And I want to just ask you before I move on with my message, because sometimes as you're just listening, uh, we could just move on. If there is something happening in your spirit right now, are you wrestling with unforgiveness? Maybe the hurt is still so fresh, it's angering you and wounding you just to hear these words. And I get that. I want you to know that I'm not saying any of this stuff from a place of impatience, um, superiority. Forgiving others is really, really hard. You can't do it just because you think you're a good person. You can't do it just because you want to move on. You can only do it if the living God has done something to release and to heal you. And he can. And if you forgive, you've heard it before. Forgiveness sets the prisoner free, and you discover in the end that the prisoner was you. If you have not forgiven, and you need to forgive, so often the offender has moved on and forgotten the offense, but you are the one still living in those chains. God wants to set you free from unforgiveness. It takes a lot of faith to let him bring you there. Would you pause for a minute? And if you're wrestling with this right now, just pray to God. Ask him to help you forgive by first touching and healing that wound in you that keeps you from forgiving. If you're not wrestling with this right now, chances are you know someone who is. Would you just pray for others? And let's just take a minute right now in quiet to ask God to deliver power which we don't have. Let's pray. Amen. Let's not pretend that one word of prayer by itself can get us all the way there. Sometimes it can. But maybe this prayer today was the first of many um, through which God will set you free inside. Because that unforgiveness is crushing your spirit. So forgiveness is one powerful, beautiful way that in the lowest moments of our lives when bad things are done to us, God brings beauty out of all that. Second way he redeems is by bringing beauty out of the ashes of loss and failure. You know, when bad things happen to us, um, the natural course of things is for those bad things, those regrets, those losses, to just keep weighing us down and pulling us under. Maybe you're one of those people, or maybe you know someone who's had a devastatingly bad turn in their life, and they've never recovered from it. It kept pulling them down, and to this day, despite all your prayers, your pleading, they've never recovered from that bad thing that happened. Man, it's so hard to watch because you feel their pain. 
you know how helpless it can feel to have something so bad done to you against your will. You lose something you can't control. And for the rest of your life, it wants to mark you and pull you down. And if there was no living God, I think that's just the end of the story. I think without God, the universe would be written by Koreans. Because if you ever watch a Korean drama, it's just the saddest possible outcome you can imagine with no redemptive relief at the end. They're starting to change a little bit. But the old stories in Korea, I was like, that is such a sad way to end a series. Can I just smile once before it's over? Koreans know how to write sad stuff powerfully. It's really moving. And I think that's honest. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's honest. If there is no God, sadness is the last chapter of the story of this whole universe. We have no reason to expect anything different. Why would you? If there's no hero, why do you expect rescue? If there's no treasure, why do you expect relief? That should just be how every story ends. And then, like the reverse card in an Uno deck, God steps into the natural course of this broken world. Bam! He turns it around. He doesn't do it every time, but when he does it, you marvel at what you're seeing because it doesn't make any sense. How out of that broken story does this life emerge? How out of the ashes of that broken, defeated, wounded life does this much beauty rise up? One of the most ancient myths in so many cultures from east to west is the story of the phoenix. A bird that dies, it burns up in flames and out of the ashes, a new bird rises up. That's a very common myth because it is the basis of the deepest human hope. That even out of the ashes of death and loss and failure, new life is possible. It's rightly said that the words, but God, the most powerful conjunction in all of scripture. Those two words entering a story changes the whole direction of the story. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended me harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. His brothers sold Joseph into slavery as an act of jealous spite. But in the end, it put Joseph in the perfect position to save their own lives. But don't hear what you think I'm saying, just hear what is, what is being said. This is not some guarantee that, that the Lord always ties everything up in a perfect bow for you. You cannot bank on that promise. But because God does enter our story, so often in the most unlikely place of defeat and loss, the most powerful parts of our story start to get written. And the turning point is whether you will let loss and grief and pain darken your heart or draw you to him, push you away from him or pull you toward him. 
If it pushes you away from him, I know why you would do that, because you fear that he is like everyone else and will just hurt you and disappoint you. And that is understandable, but it leaves you with no other place to turn. You can turn inward to yourself, but you know in your heart of hearts you are not enough to save yourself. Pain and loss want to defeat us. But they can also turn our hearts towards God in ways that the good times never can. <clears throat> I want to close by telling the story of a man. It's not my story, but it's a story of another man whose own loss and its redemption powerfully touched and shaped my own life. In 1981, a young man, an athlete named Sandy Ford, died while in surgery addressing a very rare heart condition. He was 21 years old at the time, and his father was Leighton Ford. Leighton Ford, I, I heard um, someone introduce Leighton this way once. He is the most influential pastor and Christian leader in America that no one's ever heard of. He was Billy Graham's brother-in-law and was at the heart of so much ministry that has touched so many people's lives, and he has never sought the spotlight. He has never wanted his name to be known. And when his son, his oldest son Sandy, this beautiful young man, I've read some of the letters and the journal entries that Sandy wrote, and man, what an exceptional young man. He died at the prime of his life, and as he mourned his son's death, Leighton reflected on Sandy's generation and how few Christian leaders he saw rising from his son's generation. And he was gripped by this heavy burden to give the rest of his life to developing younger leaders to rise and take their place in the kingdom of God. Ten years after the death of his son, he launched something called the Arrow Leadership Program. And in 2004, I entered that program. Back then, it was invitation only. Someone had to vouch for you, invite you in. And I still don't know why uh, I was blessed with that privilege, but somebody brought me into it. Someone else picked up the tab for it. And I entered what would become, I didn't know this at the time, but it became the most powerful and important shaping element in my whole Christian journey. I had the privilege then of meeting Leighton Ford on a number of occasions. And I have to tell you that the Aero Leadership Program, I walked in with a weird attitude not knowing what this was. I emerged completely changed. I can't think of one other thing I've been through that has affected me more deeply than those two years. And it was because another man lost what was most precious in this world to him. And out of that grief, instead of just laying down in despair, he gave it to the Lord. The Lord gave him something beautiful. He couldn't replace his son. That doesn't happen. But he gave him something beautiful that would honor his son. Arrow Leadership has now trained over a thousand leaders worldwide. 
And that may not sound like a big number, but if you, see, if you understood the depth, the expense, the weight, and the cost of the way that they develop a Christian leader, that's a remarkable number. I'm one of those leaders, and I finished in 2006. It's been my privilege to serve as a mentor for three other Arrow classes, help other men and women emerge into their place in the kingdom. For some unknown reason, Leighton Ford took an interest in me. I don't understand it, but he took an interest in me. He invited me to this thing at this little rural retreat in Charlottesville in the hill country. And I spent four years ago a glorious week with a small collection of really remarkable Christian leaders. And Leighton spoke into our lives. And I felt like I got to touch a generation that had defined so much of the faith for me. It is my hope in the next year or two to visit him in North Carolina to have him pray over me because he's very old now and uh, I want to see him one more time before he goes home to the Lord. But this man has so marked my earthly life, my ministry. And I don't know that our lives would have ever really intersected had he not lost his son because he was on a very different trajectory before That's just one story, but my life is infinitely richer because out of the ashes of his loss, God built something truly remarkable. Now, I don't know where that loss and grief is in your life, but some of you already know this is true. Out of that place where you had given up hope, out of that place where you thought this will never recover, something beautiful is emerging. We cannot replace what was lost. But God can give us something else that brings beauty out of ashes. I believe he wants to do that in some of your lives right now. So I'm going to ask if you would, bow with me one more time. And this is now time for you just to speak to God and to invite him to speak to you. So listen for him. Say what you need to say to him from your heart. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.